G'day listeners and lovers of learning. Welcome to the first ever episode of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. I'm Ollie Lovell, I'm a maths and physics teacher, and I'm currently teaching on the lands of the people of the Kulin Nation, in an area commonly referred to as Western Melbourne, Australia. I love teaching, I love learning, and I love learning about learning. And every week, I read a whole heap of articles and listen to a whole heap of podcasts on learning. Whilst I'm a maths and physics teacher, my real passion is all about learning. So whilst I will talk from time to time about the specific things related to maths and physics, more generally I'll be talking about the fundamentals of learning. I'll potentially touch on other educational issues such as funding models or privatisation of education and things like that. But I think there are other podcasts that also focus on that, things like the Teachers Education Review in Australia, who are already doing a fantastic job of staying on top of current affairs in education. So this podcast is really going to focus on what I'm more interested in, which is how we learn and how we can better help our students to learn. So without further ado, let's just jump straight into episode one. So this week, a book that I've been reading is Visible Learning for Mathematics. This is a collaboration between John Hattie and a whole heap of other authors. But this week, I just wanted to share a little bit on what John Hattie says about direct instruction. I've got a couple of quotes from the book that I thought summarized direct instruction in a way that helped to clarify it for me and subsequently might help to clarify it for some listeners. So John Hattie defines direct instruction in a way that conveys an intentional, well-planned and student-centered approach to teaching. This is a quote from John. In a nutshell, the teacher discards the learning intentions and success criteria, makes them transparent to the students, demonstrates them by modeling, evaluates if they understand what they have been told by checking for understanding, and then retells them what they have been told by tying it all together with closure. Where this article or where this section of the book on direct instruction got really interesting for me though, was when it started to talk about some of the subtleties and some of the balances between direct instruction and, for example, dialogic instruction. Here's another quote. When thinking of direct instruction in this way, the effect size is 0.59. Dialogic instruction also has a high effect size of 0.82. This doesn't mean that teachers should always choose one approach over another. It should never be an either-or situation. The bigger conversation and purpose of this book is to show how teachers can choose the right approach at the right time to ensure learning, and how both dialogic and direct approaches have a role to play throughout the learning process, but in different ways. Persistent teaching is about knowing what strategies to implement when for maximum impact. I thought it was really interesting because it had a lot of parallels with my own master's research project. My master's project was a mathematical intervention with disengaged and struggling year eight students. And the goal of my intervention was to use a conceptual knowledge kind of based on the scaffolding numeracy in the middle years resources from Dyseman at RMIT University to improve the student's fundamental understanding of mathematics and hopefully eventually enable them to transfer that conceptual knowledge to problem-based situations and to have greater success in mathematics. For me, the essential takeaway from that project was that, as it says here, it's not a question of we should always teach students in a conceptual way or conversely, we should really be teaching students processes, especially those who are struggling. But the challenge for us as teachers is to work out the right approach at the right time for the right student. I summarise this as thinking about two critical ideas of teaching as being considering the who and the when of the teaching. 
I'll just share the final paragraph of my master's thesis. This study shows that, for underachieving students, the bridge from mathematical challenge and disengagement to success and motivation is a fragile one, and the journey across it becomes more perilous the older a student gets. The ongoing challenge for teachers is to shore up and scaffold this fragile bridge's structure, and ensure that the scaffolding provided is appropriate to both the who that is crossing and the when of their traverse. Invisible learning for mathematics this week, I also came across just a little tidbit that math teachers in particular might find interesting. Again, a link to this in the show notes, but it's called the factor game. And it's just a game in which an understanding of primes and composites is crucial to developing strategies to win. The second thing that I wanted to highlight in this week's podcast is some, some of my key takeaways from one of the best education podcasts I have ever listened to. Now, this is on the Mr. Barton's Maths podcast, but it's very non-specific to mathematics, and it's actually an interview with one of my favorite educators, Dylan William. So I just wanted to share some of my key takeaways from that interview. Many of us love reciprocal teaching, you know, encouraging students to help each other, but I've often looked for a reference that summarizes the impact and the benefit of reciprocal teaching. Also, you know, some parents might be a bit afraid that if you're getting their student to help other students, it's not going to be that beneficial for their student. But uh, just quickly, Dylan William mentioned a point from the research of Robert Slavin uh, that it's actually very beneficial. And that point was that when we encourage students to help each other, whilst there are great benefits to both students, the students who learn the most are the ones who do the most explaining. I think what this point really highlights is the importance of us, for us as teachers, to consider the context that we are presenting to students and the way in which that is influencing the students' outcomes or the students' ability to answer questions. An example of this that I came across was uh, in a physics test, and this was a physics class. This was on one of my placements, and the physics class had a lot of students who had English as an additional language. And I remember some Chinese students who came across this question in a test that mentioned a thing called a ripple tank and these students had absolutely no idea what a ripple tank was and therefore were not able to answer the question. Now this is a pretty extreme example uh, because of course it's the, the context is completely confounding to the students but it's a spectrum of, of students getting confused or you know enabled by problem context and it's something for us to always keep in mind. The third thing I wanted to touch on that Dylan William talked about was on the question what is learning and there was a really just a key quick quote from Paul Kirshner uh, about what learning is that I'd like to share. That is, learning is a change in long-term memory. That is, if they don't remember it in six weeks, they haven't really learned it. And relatedly, Dylan William also talked about a quote from John Mason that I also found incredibly powerful and I've quoted several times in conversations since. And that is that teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. This ties in really well to the next point. Uh, which is about how many observations it actually takes of a teacher in order to get a fair and accurate appraisal or a, you know, a reasonably good appraisal of how good that teacher actually is. But before I jump into that point, I just wanted to stay on this point of learning and share a really good article that I came across on learning entitled Learning is Meaningless. And this is from James Manuel. And whilst I won't summarize or offer any takeaways from this article at the moment, uh, I will point you to the article because I think it gives quite a humorous and interesting dissection of what learning is. It talks about, takes it about six or seven different quotes on learning or what learning is. And it provides counterexamples to kind of provide a bit of a picture of how, how complex a process learning is and how one simple word, the word learning, can never really accurately capture what learning itself is. 
and James wrote this article as a kind of a stimulus for people to check out his glossary of learning terms, which I think is also a great resource and I might talk about a little bit more in future. The next point from the Dylan William article is that we don't actually know what good teaching looks like. The first quote on this point is from Heather Hill. And Heather Hill was talking, or Dylan said that Heather was talking about how we need to stop kidding ourselves by thinking that we can pick a good or bad teacher by observing them in class. Hill suggests that a teacher would need to be observed in six different classes by five different observers, a total of 30 observations, in order to obtain a reliable rating. Relatedly, Dan Goldhaber says that comparing two models of good teaching, a fixed effect and a random effect model, based upon value-added metrics, the best 9% of teachers, as rated by one model, were classified as the worst teachers in the other. So again, we don't actually know what good teaching looks like. So Dylan concludes that we can only really comment in the extremes, that is, we can be pretty sure that a teacher who appears to be very good is in fact not very bad, and we can be pretty sure that a teacher who appears very bad is in fact not very, very good, but that's about the extent of it. So where to from here, you know, if there's so much ambiguity, if it's so hard to pick what good teaching looks like by an observation, what are we doing observing? Well, I think one of the key things here is that when we observe someone, we're not actually looking to critique their teaching, but we're also looking to just learn. I know for me that when I've watched other people teach, I often see things that they do that might not be ideal teaching, but then I recognize, you know, it's kind of a mirror to myself and I say, wow, I've actually been doing that myself in my class. And when I'm thinking about solutions to that teacher's approach, I'm also simultaneously thinking about solutions to my own approaches to teaching. And secondly, obviously it is about supporting teachers to improve. But Dylan suggests that the question we should be asking before we start this observation is what do you want to get better at? This is asking the teacher themselves who you're about to observe, what do you want to get better at and how can we better do it? I definitely agree with this, but I also think that if, if we are maths or other area team leaders, then it isn't just about asking our teachers, uh, what do you want to get better at? It's also about providing a bit of research and put a bit of guidance uh, about perhaps what that teacher might like to focus on that's going to have the greatest impact uh, on their students' learning. So, you know, that could be things like more frequent assessment, better feedback distribution of practice, better modeling and those kind of things. Because sometimes it's hard for us uh, to know what we don't know. And sometimes it's hard for us as teachers to pick which element of our teaching for us to focus on in order to give the best results for our students. Next point from the Dylan William podcast was on thinking hard and distributed practice. So Robert Bjork said, the harder you think about something, the better you remember it. Relatedly, the best time to study something is at the point just before you've completely forgotten it. So this relates very heavily to space repetition. And hopefully at some point I'll talk about an article by Andrew Butler on a really strong teaching approach uh, that I'm keen to bring to my school this year as the mathematics, the senior mathematics uh, team leader, which integrates all these things, things such as distributed practice or also known as spaced repetition, also as really key feedback and a frequent assessment of students. And, you know, this isn't assessment of learning, but this is assessment for learning, seeing how students are going and trying to inform our future teaching. But essentially that summary of that point from Robert Bjork was about uh, the, the harder you think about something, the better you remember it. And so it kind of offers an argument contrary to making things as plain and simple as we can for students and alludes to striking the balance between making it easy for students but also providing challenge for them so they have to struggle, think harder and are therefore more likely to remember it. 
The final heading I had from my takeaway notes from this Dylan William podcast uh, was called was just simple hacks to improve assessment. So two quick points of it on assessment. The first is the hypercorrection effect. This isn't a term that I heard before, but it immediately made sense to me. Essentially, you get two benefits from assessment. The first is when the testee is forced to recall the information in the first place. This rec- relates to what I just spoke about in terms of space repetition. This strengthens the synaptic connections. Second benefit is when the testee sees the answer. There's this thing called the hypercorrection effect where when once they've realized they're wrong, it actually ingrains the memory uh, in a stronger way. So thus, in order to maximize learning, the best person to mark the test is the person who took the test. Another term that was new to me in relation to testing was synoptic testing. And that's just testing all the concepts up to the point that you're now up to. Again, related to space repetition. A really good term if you'd like to say, I'd love for us to test our students on everything we've studied up to this point. You can just say, I think we should do a synoptic test. And the final article I wanted to talk about today was actually an article from the New York Times on building habits. You know, we want to help ourselves build habits, but we also want to help our students to build habits and positive associations with learning. I believe there's a TED talk on this by Charles Duhigg where he summarizes this as well, but this New York Times article provided a really key example. So the core of every habit, and this is a quote from the article, the core of every habit is a neurological loop with three parts, a cue, a routine, and a reward. So the summary of this article is that what we want to get to ourselves and what we want our students to get to is a point where the reward is internal. That is, you don't need any external input from yourself to feel good about the habit that you're trying to establish. However, the interesting thing in this New York Times articles and the interesting thing it pointed out is that you can start off with an external reward and that will help you to build the neural associations in order to transition eventually to an internal reward. I'd like to read a couple of excerpts from the article that kind of illustrate this really well. If you want to start running each morning, it's essential that you choose a simple cue, like always lacing up your sneakers before breakfast or always going for a run the same time of day every day, and a clear reward. For example, a sense of accomplishment from recording your miles or the endorphin rush you get from a jog. But countless studies have shown that at first, the rewards inherent in exercise aren't enough. Maybe this is sounding familiar to some listeners. So to teach your brain to associate exercise with reward, you need to give yourself something that you really enjoy, like a small piece of chocolate, after your workout. Now this is counterintuitive because most people start exercising to lose weight. But the goal here is to train your brain to associate a certain cue, for example, it's five o'clock, with a routine, three miles down, and a reward, chocolate. Eventually, your brain will start expecting the reward inherent in the exercise and start to think, instead of it's five o'clock, three miles down, chocolate, it will start to think it's five o'clock, three miles down, endorphin rush, and you won't need the chocolate anymore. In fact, you won't even want it. But until your neurology learns to enjoy those endorphins and the other rewards inherent in exercise, you need to jumpstart the process. And then over time, it will become more automatic to lace up your jogging shoes each morning. You won't want the chocolate anymore. You'll just crave the endorphins. The cue, in addition to triggering a routine, will start triggering a craving for the inherent rewards to come. So it's still an early point in the, in the new year. And I know that this is, for me, an article that was helpful as I think about, you know, my New Year's resolutions and the things that I want to carry into this year and how I'm going to actually make those resolutions habits and something that's going to be sustainable for me. One of those resolutions was to get this podcast out. So 
Uh, so this first episode is a great first step. Uh, and the habit I'm hoping is that I'm going to be able to continue it on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. I hope you enjoyed it. What I'd love more than anything else is for you to provide a bit of feedback uh, to me. You can reach me uh, on by email at ollie at ollielevel.com. So that's O-L-L-I-E at O-L-L-I-E-L-O-V-E-L-L.com. And I'd love any feedback on any ways you think I can improve this podcast. Uh, also, what you got out of it and what maybe things you'd be interested in me looking at in future. If you did really enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to do a review on iTunes because that's going to help more people to find the podcast, which is going to help us to build a bigger community of discussion, hopefully learn more from each other. So thanks again. Have a great week. uh, And until next time, keep learning.